We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Second uh, Chronicles this evening. And uh, this is a lengthy chapter. I think I'm going to uh, cut it in two. Uh, this is uh, a parallel passage to 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon prays in dedication for the temple, leads the people in that dedication service. Second Chronicles and the sixth chapter. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has filled, I'm sorry, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with the children of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. 
Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be open toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That should be about halfway through the chapter, I think, so we'll stop there and save the rest for the next time. All right. Do you remember um, this morning when uh, I began and uh, we got onto this theme of uh, 316? Remember that when Thurman said something about that? And uh, John 316 and the others came up. Well, I did a quick study this afternoon. And I, I don't think I'm going to use the whole time for this, but I just thought I would share with you an interesting uh, thing to look at all the verses that share that address in the scriptures. And uh, when I went through all the books of the scriptures and looked at their 316 um, verses, I found 23 of them that I thought were especially noteworthy uh, for one reason or another. And uh, I remember it's probably, been, it's probably been better than 20 years ago that this idea came up and uh, Pastor Sachs was preaching at that time in this church. And uh, maybe our brother re- remembers that, uh, the 316 verses. So, of course, we have John 316. We all know that verse. But most of the rest of these we're a little less familiar with. So, uh, who is my youngest person in here? Jackson. You're going to keep up with me? I'm going to turn to these verses quickly, okay? Are you going to keep up? <laughs> You'll try. First John 3.16. First John, I, I should have put in my, my notes so I could just read them out, but I didn't. I just listed them out here. So 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, I, I put them all together here in the New Testament. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 3.16, and we should, I think, go through sequentially here. Matthew 3.16, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. I skip uh, Mark, and I go to Luke 3.16. In Luke chapter 3 and verse number 16. It's kind of a fun little exercise. John answered, saying uh, to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. How about uh, Romans 3.16? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't find a 3.16 in all, uh, in all 66 books of the Bible. You know Why? Well, some of the books only have one chapter. (laughs) Some of the chapter 3s don't have 16 verses, so that makes it a little tough. Romans 3.16. Oh, yeah, this is is a bad context. Remember the context, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, this verse, destruction and misery are in their ways. I just thought, you know, how pertinent that is for today when you read the news or look at the news, destruction and misery. Why? (laughs) 
Why do people have to do that? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Of course, that connects back to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, the 316s really have no major significance or theological significance. They're people who are very interested in, in kind of numerology studies, you know. They see these numbers and all this, and there are a few places where, you know, like this number 7 or 666 or different things like that are used very few times in Scripture and of course, the three, the chapters and the verses didn't come along until hundreds of years later. So it's really, it's it's just we're really making a random jump through Scripture to these places and finding interesting things. But you could do the same thing sometime. Okay, take two fifteen, look at every book in the Bible at chapter two, verse fifteen, and see just what you find as an interesting exercise. <clears throat> uh, that was Galatians, right? So uh, how about Ephesians uh, three sixteen? It says. Uh, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his might through his spirit in the inner man, one of Paul's prayers. Another classic verse we find in uh, Colossians 3.16, and it says, you probably know it, some of you do, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Second Thessalonians 3.16, what does that one say? Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And what I mentioned this morning off the top of my head, Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I extended that to verse 17 as well. Uh, the next one I have is in James <clears throat> chapter 3.16. Of course, there are others, but sometimes they're just, they don't seem to jump out at me or uh, their context uh, you know, isn't of that sort that you would do, just kind of a one-verse thing. Uh, James 3.16, but where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. I sometimes use that verse and also the one in chapter... Um, Let's see, it's in chapter uh, 2 somewhere, uh, kind of in reverse. And I say, look, if you find every evil thing in confusion somewhere, then you know where that comes from. You work backwards from it, from that principle. Uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, but this is a common pair of verses here. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 16, talking about Paul's letters as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. And then finally, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16, 
says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So it's interesting to see what you run into when you just visit verses like that. There are some others, too. I mean, um, Genesis 3.16 is not so well-liked by the ladies, especially those who have given childbirth, uh, because it talks about the pain that comes along with that. And there are some others uh, as well. Joshua, I'll go through them just for sake of completeness here. Uh, Joshua 3.16, which says, The waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. There's the crossing of not the Red Sea, but of the Jordan River in that context. And then there's, uh, we had to go quite a, quite a distance uh, away to find another one that I thought would work, and that is in uh, Ecclesiastes 3.16. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness iniquity was there. Again, very pertinent for today, the kinds of things we see in the quote-unquote justice system. Daniel 3.16, jumping over a bunch of, uh, of the prophets here. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. There's a great expression of their faith in the face of the greatest monarch of the time, the greatest dictator, if you will. Uh, Joel 3.16 the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And finally, just, well, two more actually. One is Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let, your, let not your hands be weak. Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. And the final book in the Old Testament in Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before the Lord for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. Very nice way to close that little study. God has such care for His people. All right, well, that wasn't where we were planning to go this evening, but we've been there. So let's turn our Bibles back to Matthew, please. And we're going to Matthew chapter 16 tonight. Matthew 16, and we will start in verse 13 and go down through verse number 20. The burden of my message tonight is trying to reflect simply what the text says. And that is this, that Jesus is what? The Christ. He is the Christ. And this has been on my mind, uh, of course, lately with the study of this passage, but also just generally in the last few years. And I've used this in witnessing to folks and training people in, in uh, evangelism that one of the things that you can do, and I say in a conclusion of the notes here, if you get kind of uh, stumped, 
in a presentation of the gospel or what to say to somebody, just use this phrase, Jesus is the Christ. And that's a memory aid as well as a truth. And uh, what's happening is that that idea, that truth is used in a number of passages of Scripture as a kind of framework for the gospel, speaking particularly of the identity of Christ and of his work. Let me just, don't turn to all these, just listen to some of these. John 20, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These, you know, John's saying, hey, I've wrote, written all these signs down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's inescapable, really, when you, if you stop and think about it with an open mind and a, and a soft heart, a humble heart, Jesus is the Christ. Acts 9 and verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus just after his conversion, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Acts 17 and verse number 3, Paul is in what city? Do you remember Acts 17? Key that in your mind to Thessalonica and then Berea. First of all, Thessalonica, Acts 17, 3. Paul is there, as his custom was, went to them in the synagogue, reasoned from the, from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Acts 18 and verse number 5. When Silas, and he's at Corinth now, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't this something? Later on in Acts 18.28, ministry of Apollos, he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing that from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I hope I don't sound like a broken record, but this is the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. And what we saw from Acts 17 is what I've often said to people. Paul sets it up this way. He says, here's the Old Testament. Here's how it predicts the Messiah. That's Christ, okay? His sufferings, his glory, Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, all of that. Then he says, over here, on the other hand, you have Jesus, his sufferings, his glory, his promises. He predicted his resurrection and all that. And then he says, equal sign, Christ equals Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's saying that's the one that was predicted. He's the one who came. They are one and the same. Uh, what else have I not done yet? First John is the other book that references this notion. First John. This is a critical idea because if you do not confess Jesus as the Christ, you've got a big problem. First John 2 and verse number 22 says... Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And finally, in 1 John 5 and verse number 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Jesus is the Christ. And if you believe that, then you are evidencing that you've been born from Above. So the approach that Paul used was to show what the Old Testament said about Messiah 
Then he explained the identity of and the surrounding events of the life of Jesus. And you can do that easily from the Gospels. So Jesus is the Christ, Christ, Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament. And you connect the two together. You speak of them both and tie them together and say, this is the one that was predicted centuries before he ever came. Um, And equate the two together. This exact identity is critical to correctly understand the plan of God. Denying it is the same as denying the gospel. For to deny Christ's person and work is to deny the gospel. So in Matthew 16, 13, it says this, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the question for tonight in your heart. Who do you say that I am regarding Jesus? Who is this person? Uh, It doesn't so much matter what everybody else says, but it matters what you say. So Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. He was, but they were not allowed to say that yet at that time. Go back, just look with your eyes there carefully at verses uh, 18 and 19. What are the two I will statements, the two promises that Jesus makes here? What two things does he say that he will do? Somebody have one? Jack, you have one? Number one, I will build my church. What's number two? You got another one, Jackson. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. You must have been studying your grammar lately because you noticed that I will right quick, twice. Two promises. We'll come to those. I don't know if the clock is going to permit that this evening, but I wanted you to observe that Christ is promising, I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to have to puzzle through just what that means. And uh, I'm sure that we won't be able to fully get to the bottom of that this evening, but we can at least alert ourselves to it and uh, begin to work at it. We start out with a question and confusion over the identity of the Son of Man. In verse 13, When they came to Caesarea Philippi, now this is just north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, maybe roughly the same kind of uh, latitude as, um, what am I thinking, Tyre, not so far north as Sidon, but that area generally, far north in Israel. And uh, they were there, and he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, I doubt if Jesus was unaware of the answer to this question, 
Um, but he was using the question as an, a point of instruction for the disciples. Now, humanly speaking, it may be that you know, he was a little more isolated from the, the people in general than his disciples might have been. I mean, you know, I kind of think just you know, for myself, I'm far more isolated from the general operation of the population than you are being out and working and school and all of that sort of stuff. So I do sometimes rely on information coming from you to uh, see what you're dealing with or hear about the kinds of things going on out there in the quote-unquote real world. I'm in, the, I'm in the ecclesiastical world, if you could say, a little isolated uh, from those things. So you can, maybe you can kind of you know, put it into that category that he's asking that question. <clears throat> He first asked about the opinions of the masses. Um, you know, what does George Barna say about all the masses out there? What, is, what, what do they believe about the Son of Man? And so he's depending here on the disciples to be in touch with the opinions of the people among whom they ministered. Notice here that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. We have gone over this uh, recently and thinking through evangelism and those who uh, deny the deity of Christ. And they use this phrase to say, see, he's the son of man. He's a human. Yes, he is. But it doesn't say that he's not the son of God when it talks about him being the son of man. And in fact, in uh, Daniel, you're not going to find a more exalted figure in the Old Testament than the son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, he comes before the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting kingdom. That's not just some old man. That's the Son of Man, the one who is divine, the God-man. And so we can expand on that more, but we'll just leave it at that for now. One of, well, probably Jesus' favorite uh, title to use for himself, the Son of Man. And so he asked the question, and the disciples ran through the gamut of public opinion on this. Some say John the Baptist. Now, uh, this may be because it's at the head of the list, maybe the most popular opinion. I don't know for sure. It doesn't specifically say that, but I, I just have to wonder if since you know, he asked the question, they might kind of come up with the most popular opinion. Some say John the Baptist. Now, we know one person in the Bible who thought that. Who was it? Remember? Herod. Very good. Very good. Uh, Herod thought that. Matthew 14, verse number 2 it says, um, Herod speaking, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, after he'd heard about Jesus. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. This was, of course, unrealistic, and we noted that at the time because John and Jesus lived, uh, what's the word? There's one English word I'm looking for, cotemporaneously, concurrently, together for 30 years since that was the case. They couldn't be the same person, but apparently uh, Herod was ignorant of that fact, um, not knowing, you know, it's always dangerous to speak when you don't know basic facts. You know, you come up with very odd conclusions when you don't know the basic facts, like, no, this guy was alive 30 years, the same time this guy was alive, this guy died, this guy's not the same as that guy. So apparently some people believed that, not just uh, Herod. Others believed 
that uh, the Son of Man was equal to Elijah. Elijah. Now, his translation to heaven gives him a special kind of human interest, and we often think of Elijah and perhaps Moses as well when we think to the book of Revelation, the two witnesses, Revelation 11, and how they're going to be there, and, and uh, you know, it seems like, well, that could be the case. Um, you know, if you're going to put Elijah there because he didn't die, then you'd probably have to put Enoch there because he was translated as well, two characters in the scriptures that had that kind of thing happen to them. Others said Jeremiah. I wonder why would they say Jeremiah? Any ideas? Why would people... They saw some similarity between what Jesus was doing and what Jeremiah did. How's Jeremiah um, explained or described? Yeah. Yeah, you got two, I've got two guys here that have given me the weeping prophet. That's correct. He's the weeping prophet. You know, Jeremiah, among all the other, um, all the other prophets, they really hammered the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. And, uh, of course, you know, st- Jesus is doing some of that as well, uh, you know, reflecting the truth of God that the Pharisaic leadership and the people of Israel that were uh, either victimized by them or willing participants in their, in their sinful approach to religion were so far from God. And so Jeremiah. And then what's the next possibility? Well, they say, or one of the prophets. So now we're getting to kind of, I think, the end of the list and like, you know, people have different opinions and it's just kind of, you know, it's all just dispersed now. You know, John the Baptist may have been, you know, 30% of the, of the poll. And now we come down to all the prophets and we get into the noise in the polling data. Um, you know, this is the catch-all category for the populace and probably least in terms of the numbers. Um, you know, who, who would those be? Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, you know, who knows? Moses? No, nobody said Moses, did they? They wouldn't dare say that. But one greater than Moses was there in their midst. It's interesting to note that in every case, the people identified Jesus not as a new prophet but as an old one, either resurrected or, in the case of Elijah, kind of resurrected, brought back from heaven. We have to remember then that the populace was largely, what I'll say, clueless. They were not nearly as well prepared as the disciples to answer this question because the disciples had spent so much time with Jesus. But... You know, the disciples themselves had their share of problems. So if the disciples acted sometimes a little bit cluelessly, you can expect the population would be even far worse than that in terms of their knowledge of and and identity of who the Son of Man was. So that's the question and the confusion. We go then to verses 15 to 17 where we have clarity from heaven. Clarity on the question from heaven to Peter. Verse 15 says, Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? Question is, what do you think? What do you believe? And I want to leave that question with you tonight and the answer from the title of the message, Jesus is the Christ. What do you think? What do you think about that? The one who is chosen by God, selected 
anointed, uh, marked out for God's service, and that because he is, as we now know, the Son of God. That wasn't as, as clear, if you will, or, or laid out plainly for us in the Old Testament Scriptures, but it certainly is in the New Testament Scriptures. There's a few allusions in the Old, but I think you get the point there. Simon Peter answered our Lord's second question and said this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that's remarkable. That is remarkable. I mean, who knows but that Peter may have been older than Jesus. Maybe he was around the same age, but he had seen, maybe heard of Jesus earlier on. He uh, was called to ministry by him. Um, There's all this kind of question amongst the religious leaders about this person, but he's come to the conclusion, not fleshly generated, but he's come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. He's taken in enough teaching. He's connected the promises, the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament, connected them to the, the things that he's seeing there and saying, it must be. There's only one option for us. You are the Christ. Now, I don't know what degree uh, of tentativeness he assigned that in his mind, but the fact that he would say it and mean it was extremely significant and true. So Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That is, Simon bar is the Aramaic for son. Simon, son of Jonah, perhaps your translation puts it. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, back to the question itself. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? The question about a person's identity, put yourself in in his shoes and and think of yourself asking your closest friends, who do you, who am I anyway? I mean, we know the Lord's not having an identity crisis here. He's not trying to figure out, you know, who he is and go on some journey around the world to find himself, you know, and realizes that he was there all the time. He, didn't, he wasn't lost. He didn't have to find himself. But uh, it's a little strange, at least I think. What, what I mean is, you know, we are who we are, and we do not normally have a hidden identity that needs to come to the surface, you know, unless we're a spy or something, and we have two identities, uh, in which case we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be asking people to uh, tell us who we really are. But a person might ask the, the who do you say that I am question if they're having an existential crisis or midlife crisis or a similar depressive situation. They need to hear from others to help reestablish clarity in their own mind as to who they are. That's not Jesus' case. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying if somebody were to ask that question, um, they would be asking, you know, what do you think I'm like? What do I like to do? What am I gifted at? What family do I belong to? I suppose you could imagine somebody with a head injury asking this question, like, who am I? Why, why am I here in this hospital? Who do I belong to? What's my birthday? What's my name? And so on. That's got to be an awful situation. You know that when people forget who they are? Um, John had something like this depressive situation in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel where he asked of Jesus, are you the Christ? 
and I think this could have been related to another question, not about Jesus, but about John himself. Who am I? If he's not the Christ, and I was ministering, and I was saying, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and expecting him to bring the kingdom, and all of this stuff, and now he's not. In the depth of his depression, he lost sight of who Jesus was. Then he would have to be wondering maybe who he himself was, announcing the coming one, and though he knew who it was, but then he thought he was mistaken because of the harsh circumstances that were weighing on him. It was a real mental struggle for him. Remember my message on John's prison depression is how I cast that, just as a way to help us think about depression and how it was handled there. But Jesus was asking the question not only because it was important for the disciples to understand it, but because there was something unique and important about Jesus that had to be addressed. He was a person like no other, so it was very important not for himself to ask the question, but for him to ask them so that they would, it would be called out for them who this Jesus is because his identity is superiorly, superbly important. Like no other, one come down from heaven who joined humanity in a way that no one else did or ever will do. And that's really the question of the gospel. That's why I've asked it of you several times tonight. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you really believe that? So Peter answers the question with clarity. You are, how does he say it? The Christ, the Messiah is what he means. Always in your mind just think Christ equals Messiah, the anointed one. That's the the Hebrew and the Greek version of that. He connected Jesus with the Old Testament prophecies like Paul later did in Acts or John did in 1 John, those verses that we read at the beginning of our message tonight. And the other apostles in their God-breathed letters Hundreds of times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Christ. Must have been important for them if they said it so many times, and they did. Now, this information that Peter had was not generated by his own power or reason, or he wasn't told it from other human beings. That's what the Lord means when he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, where you know we cannot know the things of God by the eyes seeing or the ears hearing or the hearts figuring, but God reveals these things to us through his Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. We've been given the Spirit of God that we might understand the things of God And so Peter also was told by God, likely through the work of the Holy Spirit in his mind, that Jesus is the Christ. He put those puzzle pieces together, not on his own wisdom, but by the work of the Spirit of God. The light bulb turned on for Peter, and not due to some superior intellect on his part, but on the work of God in his life. That's how he knew it. And that's how you know that Jesus is the Savior, that he's the Son of God, because God's Spirit works in your heart to believe that. If you don't believe it, then ask God to help you send his Spirit to reveal that, turn on the light, and help you to see. For those of us that have followed Jesus for any length of time, 
it's as it's a spiritual truth to be sure, but it's as clear as two plus two equals four that Jesus is the Son of God and that he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and so on. It's, it's, it's just obvious. We don't struggle with that. We know him. And I think according to the promise of the Lord to Thomas, we are blessed because we know that, because even though we haven't seen him, yet we do believe in him. Now, after the confusion and question, and then the re-question and the clarity from heaven to Peter, Jesus continues his answer to the apostles, and he says in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I probably have given an entire message on the on this rock, I will build my church concept. And I know that it seems not too long ago, but I think it's, it's receding into the past now quickly. I gave a whole message on the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. I'll work backwards from there. The gates of Hades is not referring to like some army that comes out of hell trying to attack the church with you know military weapons. Don't think of it that way. It's the gates of Hades refers to death. The ultimate enemy of humanity, not even death itself, can prevail against the church under its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very powerful statement about the power of the church, the gates of of Hades, the gates of hell. The most powerful fear factor in humanity, which holds most humans subject to its power their whole lifetime, is death. Think of Hebrews 2.15. Their whole lifetime they were subject to bondage, but that bondage we have been released from in Christ. Not even death can conquer the church, for the church's head, Christ, has not only the keys to the kingdom, but what other keys does he have? Revelation. You got it? We've got a sharp Bible student out here. Say it again, Jack. He has the keys of death and of Hades. When you have the keys to something, you know, you know. Dad, can I have the keys? Uh uh uh, not yet. <laughs> you have the authority. You have the power when you have the keys. And uh, he has the, the keys of death and of Hades and the keys of the kingdom, we'll speak about here. But um, he has authority over them. The church is impervious to the attack, even of the worst of dreaded enemies. Lesser foes are no match for its work. People of the world will understand this by and by, and there have been some little, I think, uh, windows into this um, power that the church, the work of Christ has on the earth. I just use, I just ran into one negative kind of example. I say a negative example. There was a female comedian who was making fun of the whole COVID thing, and she used the name of Christ blasphemously in her rant. And within the next moment, she fell down and broke her skull on stage. This was just recently. I got, what was it? A couple few weeks ago or something like that. That kind of thing is going to happen to the whole world 
who is cursing Christ. And eventually, God doesn't always do that. He lets a lot of people, he gives a lot of people a long leash. But you know how the dog is when it's got a long leash and it's running? What happens when it gets to the end of the leash? It's caught up quite short and it's quite uncomfortable. And that's what's going to happen with people who deny uh, the work of God and they attack the work of the church and so on. Lesser foes are no match for the work of God in the world. So that's the, speaking of the power of the church and the indestructibility of the work of God on the earth. You can do all kinds of things to it, but you'll just, you know, by squeezing the work of the church, only, only serve to expand its work and, and cause it to grow out in all kinds of other directions. Great damage has been done, say, in the communist countries against the church. But yet so far, they have not erased the work of the church in their midst. Well, in any case, that's the power of the church. Backing up in the verse, he says that you are Peter, and that's his name, Simon Peter, but his name is you know, by root, if you will, related to the word for rock, for Petra, is what that word is. And so Jesus uses a play on words on this Petra, I will build my church. He doesn't say on this Peter, I will build my church. On this rock, not the same as Peter, but closely related because of this play on words. And this indicates that Jesus is not building the church on Peter himself, but on the rock, which is the truth that he himself is the Christ, the truth professed by Peter moments earlier. I have to go back and look at my notes on that. I, I, I didn't do that, but I should go back and kind of look at the expanded notes that I wrote on this to, uh, to come back to this the next time. But it's the truth professed by Peter moments earlier. Who's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ is its cornerstone, not Peter, not the other disciples. So the foundation is the truth of Jesus as Messiah, really his person himself. So, I will build my church is the first promise. I will build that. This is the first mention of the church. It's a little bit probably mysterious to Peter and the other disciples what this is. My congregation, my ecclesia, he's going to build. And then he gives the second promise. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Um in my notes, which are available for you online, I've included a copy of a lengthy article by Dr. Mark Snowberger on the keys of the kingdom. He wrote it last December. I found it very interesting and helpful, and I've included that there for you and the link to it if you want to see it in its original context. Um, this has always been another one of these difficult concepts. What is the Lord doing here? What is he promising on this idea of the kingdom? Now, I want you to notice he doesn't say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys to the church. That almost would make sense, wouldn't it? I'm going to build it and then I'm going to give you the keys to it so you have authority over it. No, he doesn't say that. I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys to the church. No, keys to the kingdom. He uses a different word, to the basileia, to the kingdom. And so we have to make that distinction and find out what is the relationship between those two ideas very carefully. We will not do that all today or this evening. 
some theologians, I fear, move far too quickly to equate church and kingdom. That's a very common position amongst uh, Reformed theologians, Presbyterian theologians, even Baptists, many people who misunderstand the import of those two terms. Um, we don't equate them, but they are related. Now, the keys speak of authority, like we said, the keys of the kingdom. Uh, and he says in verse 19, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And there's another question, well, what does that mean? There's some major authority or power here that is invested in Peter and in the, <clears throat> the other disciples, as we'll see in just a moment. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. And in the passage... Starting in verse 15 through 17, we have the section on how to deal with a sinning brother. Uh, what's the church's ministry to an unrepentant sinner? And then in verse 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That, immediately in the context of, if you have to go in this process of church discipline, as it's called, all the way to telling the church and the person still does not repent, then he says, uh, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, you put him out of the membership of the local assembly. And then he says this phrase, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is not to say that the church is infallible, but it is to say this, and this is why church discipline, that whole matter is so serious. Somebody is a sinning brother, unrepentant, and it has to, comes all the way through that process to the church. The church puts that brother out or sister. This text is telling us that something is going on in the church and in heaven at the same time. That the church is giving the, uh, its, its estimation, if you will, of the veracity of the person's profession of faith, and that is matching what is said in heaven? Something's bound here and bound there. Something's loosed here and it's loose there. There's some connection between them, and we can express that further another time. But it's a very, very serious kind of thing that the Lord is talking about. I will build my church, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. I've said sometimes in the past, and I, I do believe this does, there is an implication at least to this idea, when we as ministers of the gospel make authoritative proclamations from the scriptures, it's as if heaven is speaking. When you say, in, you know, in the connection here of, uh, of the church discipline and of forgiveness of sin, when you tell somebody, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, you might as well be an angel from heaven speaking to them because you have that authority. In fact, you have more than that authority. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. has been given to him. And then he goes and tells us to preach the gospel to all the nations and make disciples and so on. So you have some connection to what's going on in heaven by binding and loosing here proclaiming, in my kind of implication of this, proclaiming the gospel and forgiveness of sins. If you don't believe the gospel, 
Your sins are not forgiven, and heaven agrees with that. If you do believe the gospel, your sins are forgiven, and heaven agrees with that. All right, verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one. Well, that seems backwards. Aren't you supposed to tell everyone? Well, not at that time. See, at that time, if they were to go and spread this information around, what would happen? It was wrong timing in the sense that he, would, he had to be killed at just the right time in Jerusalem, uh, around the Passover and so on, and so he couldn't do something that would artificially accelerate that timeline. That's why he did say things like this, or like, um, you know, tell no one that, you know, I did this miracle for you. And then, of course, invariably, or not invariably perhaps, but many times a person said something, at least as recorded in Scripture. So it was unfortunate in one sense that he had to say this because the greatest people, the greatest need people have is to know Jesus is the Christ, to know him. Now go back to the beginning of the message. If you have a brain freeze when you're witnessing for Christ, just remember this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Go to the Old Testament for a few verses. Go to the New Testament for a few verses and connect them together. Show that there was prophecy of him in the Old Testament hundreds of years before he came, and that prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. They must be the same personage, and you can thus start your presentation of the gospel and kind of prime the pump in that brain freeze situation to say, hey, this is what I believe. You know, you could connect Isaiah 53 with the events of the Gospels and the suffering of Christ. He made his soul an offering for sin. His visage was marred more than any man, chapter 52. Uh, you know, he, he was like a lamb before its shearers is silent, and so on. You could uh, go to Psalm 110, when God said to the Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then you could use some of the texts in the New Testament that talk about that. Uh, Hebrews 1.13 sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His work was finished. Matthew twenty-two, forty-four. How is it that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand? Um, Acts 2, 34, Peter preaching there, or Mark 12, Hebrews 10, Ephesians 1. There's all kinds of verses. In fact, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. So you could use a couple things like that. You could use, what else? Um, you know, Genesis with the fall and the first gospel and, and connect that to the New Testament. Um, you could uh, look at maybe Psalm 22 and the prophecies of the righteous sufferer there and how the Lord uses those words on the cross. Uh, you know, why have you forsaken me and, and those things. Uh, you could go to Luke chapter 24 and review when the Lord reviewed with the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he told them about all the things that were said to them in Moses and the prophets that the Lord had to suffer and then enter into his glory. And so you could use Old Testament texts that talk about the suffering of Christ and his coming glory and say, well, look, here's how that was fulfilled. The first coming of Christ, his suffering. The second coming of Christ, his glory. So hopefully those will help you in your evangelistic efforts with with someone, and, uh, and you know, don't worry. You don't have to say everything all at once, you know, a little bit at a time with your family and friends that you're witnessing to, and I uh, hope that will help you as you think through this. The critical question, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And uh, maybe you could ask that question. 
you know, when you are witnessing to somebody. Maybe don't just start with the assertion Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you start with this question to elicit a response. Questions are really good ways to have a conversation starter. Who do you think Jesus is? Or what do you think of Jesus? And see what the person says back and then say, well, let me share with you what the Bible says about that question. And that can be a help. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank you for this passage that we've been able to look at. We remember, Lord, the critical importance of the question and its answer. We thank you for Peter bringing that clarity from heaven to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, it's very clear. It's God-breathed text. Throughout the New Testament, it's repeated over and over and over. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. If we confess that, then we're in good stead with you. If we deny that, then we're lost. So help us to confess those truths and to bring them to our friends and neighbors who need to know them as well. Which knowing is that salvific knowledge that is beyond any other that we could have. In Jesus' name, amen.